This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Promises Behavioral Health. If you're struggling through the pains of alcohol or drug addiction or a mental health disorder, now's the time to seek the help that you need. Let this be an opportunity to get back on track and get back to finding the real you. You're not alone, and Promises Behavioral Health is here. They can help you. They can help your family member. Uh, Now, we've worked with Promises for years. We know their teams personally. We have great relationships with them. And most importantly, we trust Promises, and so can you. To learn more about Promises treatment options for you or your loved one, here's what you can do. You can go to promises.com slash sober guy. That's promises.com slash sober guy. Or you can just pick up the phone and call 888-205-1890. That's 888-205-1890. Tell them that you heard about them from that sober guy podcast. That Sober Guy podcast contains adult content, merciless truth, and emotional nudity. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Shane Raymer. You're listening to That Sober Guy podcast, and we help people stay sober. If it's your first time listening, welcome. I'm so glad that you're here today. Good to be here with you. Got a great episode for you today. Got a great throwback episode, should I say, with Rich Roll. If you're not familiar with Rich, he's done some pretty amazing work in his life that really didn't start until he was later on in life. He was a little bit older. Uh, He's a vegan ultra endurance athlete. He's a full-time wellness and plant-based nutrition advocate, uh, public speaker, husband, father of four, Definitely an inspiration to many others. Um, he's got a great podcast, some great guests. I think David Goggins, the first time I heard David Goggins, before he was even on Joe Rogan, I actually heard him on Rich's podcast. Uh, but at the age of 40, and after years of struggling with drugs, with alcohol, and just a, a really an unhealthy living lifestyle, Rich dedicated his diet to plants uh, and his body to purposeful Action, And then just two years later, he began clocking top finishes at Ultraman World Championships and uh, leading a community of others looking to transform their lives. Uh, So Rich continues this journey today. Uh, He's like I mentioned, he's got a great podcast, the Rich Roll podcast. Uh, He's got some great best selling books, uh, Finding Ultra, uh, which I have read. Great book. I had it on the audio version. So while I was commuting back in the day, I was listening to that. Um, the Plant Power Way, uh, The Plant Power Way Italia, uh, and his latest book, Voicing Change. Uh, and uh, man, it's got some great work. I highly recommend checking out the podcast if you're not familiar with Rich or any of his books. Uh, I got to sit and have this conversation. Uh, this is a few years old, this, this, uh, this chat we had. Uh, I was sitting in uh, a, a hotel room down in Fresno, California at the time. Uh, that we recorded this, and I can re- remember it very uh, clearly, uh, just having a great conversation. Uh, I think that this is one of those podcasts, is one of those conversations that's timeless, uh, and I try to do that in all of the conversations on on the show here. That way, you know, they, they can be used just like this. You can go back three years, four years later and still, still hear those, and they're still relevant today. Uh, so, Really hope you enjoy the podcast uh, with Rich today. Uh, Also want to tell you, we have some new content coming up. Um, I'm really excited to have Sean Thompson. He's a a professional, um, probably I think one of the top 10 uh, surfers, uh, world champion surfers in the world. 
um, from South Africa, and he's going to be coming on to discuss just surfing, the parallels of surfing and life. Um, he's got a, a, a crazy story in his own losing his, his son when his son was just 15. And um, he actually wrote a book. Oh, he's written a couple of books, uh, but the newest one called The Surfer and the Sage. And um, it's funny, man. He, he wrote the book with a friend of mine who I actually had on the podcast back in the day who was really an inspiration to me in the early days of the podcast. Uh, his name's Noah Ben-Shia. You can go back and find that episode. It's in the 100 somewhere. Uh, but Sean and Noah co-wrote this book together and, uh, and their production team, Frank, sent me a copy recently and I just got it in the mail a couple of days ago and it's just an awesome book, man. There's pictures in there. Uh, there's uh, just great writings and excerpts from both these brilliant minds of uh, Noah and of Sean and, and sharing their experience and so really excited to have Sean on the podcast here coming up. And then uh, we also are going to have uh, Tommy Rosen will be coming on the podcast. Uh, we're just working on getting that one scheduled right now. Uh, and uh, yeah, we'll see what happens from there. You know, I'm always uh, I'm always looking out for good guests and, and new stuff. And it's been nice to take a little break through the summertime and repurpose some of this uh, amazing content that we've created over the years with some amazing guests. Uh, but uh Man, hope you guys are doing good. Uh, feel free to check in on Locals. Um, you can find all of our resources, like our free 10-day guide to help jumpstart your life without alcohol, 30-day uh, quit drinking dude challenge. That's 30 podcasts in 30 days. Uh, you can join the Sober Guy Men's Crew on our Locals platform. Of course, more podcast meetings. Uh, you can find all that by going to thatsoberguy.com. And then uh, be sure to follow us on Instagram at that sober guy podcast. Uh, if you want to reach out to us, there's a contact form at that soberguy.com as well. And uh, man, I'm so excited to share this with you today. Hope you all are having an amazing day. And here is Rich Roll. Welcome, welcome to the show today. We're talking with Rich Roll. Rich, what's up, man? How are you? I'm good, Shane. Thanks for having me, man. I'm psyched to talk to you today. Uh, I am too, man. I've been getting into some of your book, uh, and man, it's just, it's so inspiring. And, uh, for some, for some of us who've been through some things in our lives, maybe in our twenties into our thirties, um, some of the things that you've been able to accomplish after making some, uh, some, maybe some bad decisions back then, man, it's just truly amazing. I can't wait to get into talking about it with you, man. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. It's, uh, you know, it's been a long road, you know, trudging, trudging the road to happy destiny, as we say. Sure, sure. For those who don't know you, uh, tell us who Rich Roll is. Uh, let's see. Well, I'm a, I guess I'm a, overall, I'm a wellness advocate. Uh, I do lots of different things. Like yourself, I host a podcast every week, the Rich Roll Podcast. I'm an author. I've written a couple books, Finding Ultra, as you mentioned, and also The Plant Power Way. Uh, I do a lot of public speaking, uh, and I have some online products, some online courses. So I do a smattering of a whole bunch of different things, plant-based advocate, but it all kind of falls under the umbrella of just trying to be of service in the wellness community. Sure, sure. Great, man. Great. You also have a pretty interesting background. Um, you graduated from Stanford uh, and Cornell Law School. Um, you were a swimmer as well in at, at Stanford, and I'd like to kind of back up and get into a little bit about um, some of your experience there. One thing I found really interesting, man, in in uh, in, in your book was the first beer you had with Bruce Kimball, and I'd I'd really love to hear that story. Um, and man, I was looking 
when I was doing some research for, for this conversation, this interview here, I, I wasn't familiar with Bruce, um, you know, before I had heard, heard about it in the book. And when I went back and did a little research on that, man, that has got to be one of the craziest stories, man, of, uh, of well, I'll, I'll kind of let you tell it. So, man, let, t- take it away. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, Bruce Kimball's story is insane. But, you know, to kind of uh, set the stage for it, when I was a senior in high school, I was pretty much a goody two-shoes. I was studying really hard, and I was really devoted to swimming. That was my, you know, focus and my passion. And I, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't partying in high school like most kids. I didn't discover alcohol until I started going on recruiting trips. I was a good enough swimmer that I started getting flown around the country to visit various colleges. And one of those was the University of Michigan, uh, which was a pretty, you know, top-ranked swimming program at the time. They flew me out for a big weekend football game and the whole nine yards, and there was a swim meet. And after the swim meet, which they won, there was a party afterwards for the swimmers and, and the diving team. And that's when I met uh, Bruce Kimball. And for people that don't know, uh, at the time, we're talking 1985. Uh, that's how old I am. I'm dating myself. But... <laughs> Other than Greg Louganis, Bruce Kimball was the greatest uh, American talent in diving. He was a superstar. Uh, I can't remember his, you know, his, his exact credentials. I believe he may have won an Olympic medal uh, in 1980. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. His father is also one of the most legendary coaches in diving. Uh, but Bruce is, a, you know, is kind of a notorious alcoholic. And subsequent to this uh, encounter, he got into a lot of trouble. But at the time, I just thought he was, you know, I mean, I knew who he was beforehand, and yeah. I was psyched to meet him. And he was partying like a champ at this party, and he pulled off one of the greatest uh, drinking tricks that I've ever seen in my life to date, which is he took a he, – he poured himself a beer out of the keg, and from from a standing stature, no walking or running or anything like that – he did a standing backflip, holding his beer, landed on his two feet, and did not spill one drop of that beer. Oh, and when man. I saw that, I was like, I want what that guy has. You know? He's like a wizard. And I was like, give me a beer, and I just wanted to party with him, yeah. and it was game on. And I just remember that it was really the first time that I got drunk. And, you know, you hear this a lot with uh, alcoholics and people in recovery, it was like this warm blanket just enveloped yeah. me and all the problems that I didn't know that I had suddenly evaporated and I could talk to a girl and I could crack a joke and be social because I was always a very awkward kid. I didn't like going to parties in high school. I wasn't invited, but even when I had the <laughs> off chance opportunity to go, I just always felt squirmy and I didn't know how to you know, handle myself. And suddenly this was my solution uh, delivered to me by Bruce Kimball, who then went on to uh, get himself into quite a bit of trouble. He was involved in a couple DUIs and drunk driving accidents, one of which, uh, I, again, I can't remember the details, but he killed somebody and went to prison for it, and that promptly ended his diving career. It's quite a tragic, yeah. Yeah, uh, well, I, tragic that, story. And that's what I was saying. The irony of that was so so un- unbelievable because he wasn't before he had gotten to an accident and was hit by a drunk driver himself. Right. Somebody had hit him, right. I think, and then went on and, and, you know, I think, uh, he plowed through, um, some high school kids. God, I mean, just a unbelievable story and, uh, something that is just unexpected. And when alcohol takes the wheel for many of us, man, some, some bad stuff can really happen. Yeah, that's the truth. Um, so getting into your swimming career a bit, um, 
how did alcohol really hurt your swimming career? And I, I'm sure I can imagine there was probably some hurt and some regret there. How, how did those feelings, um, you know, how did you deal with those feelings after, after that? Yeah, well, it definitely destroyed my swimming career. Uh, you know, when you're young, you can bounce back. I can remember going to parties in college and, you know, just to be clear, you know, Stanford was the number one swimming program at the time, but I was very much a bench warmer. So, you know, I was never going to make the Olympics, even under the best of circumstances. But, uh, I, you know, my drinking career definitely uh, capped the ceiling on my potential. Yeah. Um, and the main thing that it did was that, you know, I could still make workout. I would wake up early in the morning, hungover and drag myself to practice. But, it just eroded my ambition. Like I just stopped caring really. And I didn't take care of myself and I just became more concerned with where my next good time was. And it just yeah. made me drift away from the thing that, you know, I was so passionate about. And I think, you know, you work really hard in sobriety to overcome your regrets. You know, we shall not regret the past or wish to shut the door on it. And, and I thought that I had kind of put that in my rear view, but I think there was always something in the back of my mind thinking, you know, I just never really reached my potential as an athlete. And, you know, that's where, you know, that's a big part of my, you know, sort of ultra endurance quest in, in middle age, I think in part had some, you know, was fueled by that in some respects, this, yeah. this, this idea that, you know, I still wanted to see what I could do under the best circumstances, sober, you know, clean living and all the like. And in, in, in all fairness to you, you turned down Harvard to go to Stanford. So I, I think that's <laughs> yeah. uh, the sunshine, <laughs> yeah. you know, swimming outdoors, yeah. I couldn't turn it down. Sure, sure, man. Um, well, since you mentioned it, um, talk about the Ultraman. Um, what, what the hell is an Ultraman? And um, how did you how did you do it in your early 40s with only two years of training? So the Ultraman, and most people have heard of an Ironman, right? An Ironman mm -hmm. is a very long triathlon, which over the course of a day, you swim 2.4 miles, and then you bike 112, and then you run a marathon. It's like this insane race, widely considered, you know, the ultimate test of human endurance. But I stumbled across this race I'd never heard of before when I was kind of researching uh, challenges, this race called Ultraman, which has been around for, you know, almost as long as Ironman. It's been around over 30 years at this point. Um, and it's actually twice the distance of Ironman, a little more than twice the distance. It's a 320-mile, three-day circumnavigation of the big island of Hawaii. So on, you do it like a stage race. The first day is a 6.2-mile swim followed by 90 miles on the bike. And then the next day, you race your bike 171 miles. And then the third day, you run a double marathon, 52.4 uh, miles. And you kind of do this loop around the entire Big Island of Hawaii during the course of that period. And it's limited to just 35 athletes. They keep it really small. It's invitation mm -hmm. only. People come from all over the world. And uh, it's very low-key. You know, unlike Ironman, there's no sponsorship money. There's no media coverage. They don't even close the roads you really? know, during Damn. the race. So you're riding your bike with traffic. And it's, it's, it's much more of a kind of spiritual adventure. And I think that's what drew me to it because it was less about who wins and who has the fastest time and much more about um, having a transformative experience over the course of this three-day period as you, you know, swim, bike, and run, supported by – your crew. Every athlete has to bring their own crew. There's a car that follows you around with people in it that feed you and 
fix your bike if it breaks down and the like. And it's yeah. just as much an endurance challenge for the crew as it is for the athlete. It's a team thing. You, you know, I think there's something really important that you just said that, that maybe we could touch on. Um, you know, you talked about bringing a crew, someone to help if your bike breaks down. There was a spot in there where um, where I think you had crashed and your pedal fell off and you were ready to give up. Like you were ready to go home. It was raining. You wanted to go sleep in a nice warm bed. There was still like 137 miles left to go or something like that. Um, man, talk about adversity and talk about how um, how do you get through adversity? How do you challenge yourself and um, and really let your mind do some magic in a sense and overcome things like that? Yeah, sure. It's a great question. So um, in 2009, it was my second Ultraman race. Uh, I, uh, after the first day, I was winning the race by 10 minutes. I had a 10-minute lead on the field. So I went into the day two 171-mile bike race, like in pole position, which is insane. You know, I was 43 years old, this like corporate lawyer, <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, I, I just couldn't even believe it was even yeah. happening at all. But about 30 miles into that day two ride, uh, the wheels slipped out from underneath me on wet pavement and I went down really hard. I landed on my left knee and my left shoulder, took all the skin off my left shoulder and banged my knee pretty good and broke my pedal. And it was on a section of the road where the crew, the one section of the road, like this 10 mile stretch where the crew cars can't follow you. So I had to literally pedal my bike on one leg for about a mile to link back up with my crew. And there was another, uh, crew there um, who was supporting a different athlete who saw my bike and asked me, you know, I thought my race was over. I was yeah. done. Like, I'm not going to ride 150 miles on one leg. Yeah. Um, and he had a brand new pedal, the exact make and model that I needed to fit my cleat, the odds of which are like ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point, after that one mile, one leg bike pedal, I had already talked myself out of completing the race and you know, just started thinking about how nice it would be to bow out of this painful experience and go to the beach. Uh, but he, you know, fixed my bike and handed it to me and said, you know, you've come too far. You got to get it back on your bike and finish this thing. And which I did, which was the most painful, you know, seven hours on a bicycle I've ever had, you know, blood dripping down my shoulder and my swollen knee the whole time. And certainly, you know, I was no longer in the lead. I lost, you know, I lost 30, 35 minutes, uh, fixing my stuff and and all that. So the idea of winning the race or being on the podium was out the window. But the thing is, you know, I I didn't get into this kind of racing to win races or or even see how fast I could go. It was really about this internal search. So I was kind of having an existential crisis about my professional life, and I was at a crossroads. I wasn't sure I, what I wanted to do, and I just wanted to get more deeply acquainted with myself and my capabilities. And Ultraman seemed like, you know, uh, quite an amazing way to do that. And, and, you know, that's what I, that was my attitude going into it. And that's exactly what I got out of it because, you know, as an athlete, if everything goes your way, if you have the perfect game or, you know, you golf a perfect game, you know, whatever, if everything goes perfectly well, you don't really learn that much. I mean, it's great for the ego, but it's not exactly an expansive experience. And it's only when things don't go your way and you're forced to make decisions under duress, extreme pressure, that you really learn who you are, what you're capable of. And that reveals character, you know? And so to me, that occurrence made it the perfect race for me because that's really what I wanted to get out of it. And that's exactly what it delivered to me. So, uh, you know, I think it's a beautiful, it couldn't have gone better than it did. 
It is, man. It's and it's a great story. And I mean, if if we kind of tone that down and apply it just to regular life situations that um, you know, you and I, that other other fathers, other mothers, other people in general out there that that we struggle with on the daily, especially those of us who are in recovery. Um, what what's your take on uh on on giving that up to a higher power? How do you approach that in your recovery? Uh, I mean that's on a it's not even a daily thing. It's an hourly thing. You know, I'm constantly taking my power back. You know, (laughs) my default setting is self will run riot for sure. And I have to do a tremendous amount of work to be in that place of faith, of surrender, of letting go. Um, and you know, it's all about, it's all a spiritual journey for me. You know, we're, we're spiritual beings having a human experience. I truly believe that. And, and so for me, it's always about, you know, laying it down at the feet of the higher power and, and, you know, releasing, you know, my agenda and, and being in acceptance of what is, you know, suffering is a result of, of your resistance to what is. And the more I can be in acceptance of that, um, through, you know, faith and service and everything that we do in the rooms to get sober and stay sober, you know, my life is better. Sure. Uh, there was one quote I pulled from from the book uh, that I that it just it just popped out as soon as I heard it, and uh, I think there was a little bit of sarcasm in it when you had said it, but it was that balances for ordinary people, and um, I just kind of wanted to get into that a little bit. This pedal to the metal attitude that many of us alcoholics and addicts struggle with. Um, how do you find balance, man? <clears throat> That's another great question. You know, I've been thinking a lot about balance over the last year. And, you know, our culture is very intent upon this idea that, you know, we should all live a balanced life. We should eat a balanced diet. Everything should be in balance in your life. And, of course, nobody's life is in perfect balance. There's always something out of whack. And, you know, if you're an alcoholic, uh, there's probably more things out of whack (laughs) than there is with the average person. And I'm just somebody by my very nature who's prone to extremes, you know, whether it's drinking or training or work or whatever it is, like I'm an all in kind of guy. And, and for a long time, you know, I, I thought I gotta, I gotta get in balance. Like I can't be this way anymore. I have to be balanced. And, and I struggle with balance and yeah. I've kind of come into, you know, we were talking about acceptance earlier and I, I kind of come into a place of accepting that this is the way that I am. And I have kind of an iconoclastic opinion about balance. Like I think balance is overrated. You know, I think, I think on a daily basis, my life is very out of balance. Like I, I get really focused on one thing. Like today I'm editing a video. I've been doing it all day. Like it's ridiculous. I shouldn't yeah. be doing it, you know, but I'm just obsessed. And normally it'd be like, that's not balanced. Yeah. You know, you shouldn't do that. But, but, you know, but I love it. And, and, you know, I have an audience that's interested in what I'm doing and I'm passionate yeah. about that. And so I think it's okay to be out of balance in the micro uh, as long as your life is in balance in the macro. You know, so if you telescope out from my life and look at it over the course of six months or a year, everything is in balance. I just vacillate between various extremes. You know, I have certain rules. I don't drink or use, you know, things like that. And, you know, if I'm training too much and I'm not with my kids, that's an unacceptable out of balance scenario. So, you know, I, I do maintain balance in the important things in my life, but I also think it's okay to allow yourself to, you know, get a little bit more extreme maybe than, you know, what, what normal society would tell you is okay yeah. about something that's important to you. And, and I think that if you look at, 
the great feats of man, whether it's, you know, Thomas Edison or you name it, you know, anything that's been achieved uh, is because that person allowed himself to be out of balance in pursuit of, of, a, of a higher calling. And yeah. so there's something laudable about it as well. So I'm not keen on like, you know, people, people saying that you have to be in balance all the time. You just made my day, bro. Like seriously, <laughs> because man, I, I struggle with that too. And, um, you know, and like, like you said, in, in general society, it is this thing that's like, okay, you need to be in balance. And I, I totally get what you're saying. Like if it's, if it's something with my kids or with my wife or with something like that and I'm out of balance, okay, that's one thing. But if it's something I'm passionate about and like you said, I'm, I'm pursuing and there's a greater calling for it, then man, get after it. And uh, it's really, really good to hear you say that. So thank you. Um, yeah, I want to kind of transition here um, into relationships a little bit. And uh, there, there was something that I really, I really liked hearing you talk about and it was between you and your wife and it was – excuse me, it was, it was the fact that, and maybe you can talk a little bit about this when you're walking up the stairs, you had the, basically the, the moment where you realize like, dude, what am, like, what am I doing to myself? I'm unhealthy. Like, I feel like shit. Like what, what's going on? Um, you had said too, that your wife never pushed you. Your wife was very holistic, a vegetarian, very spiritual. You were kind of on the other end of that at the time. And she didn't push you into that. She let you find it yourself. And the reason I bring this up is because I think as men, and I know for me personally, I'm talking about me and my wife, I try to fix her all the time. I always want to fix. I want to fix, you know, and it, it, sometimes she just wants me to listen and just sit back and not try to fix, just listen and be there for her. I thought that was really cool from your wife's perspective, how she allowed you to kind of do that. And you ended up just crushing it after that. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. You know, that's a very astute observation, and it's very true. You know, I think there was a period of time where, you know, my wife would try to nudge me. She'd leave books on my night table or, why don't you eat this? Because she could, she could see that I was suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was just lethargic and overweight and unhappy. And, and you know, she could, could kind of see how that could change if I would just take her hand but the more she kind of nudged and she was never, she's not a pushy controlling person at all, but the more she kind of, you know, suggested, why don't you do this? Or why don't you do that? Like the more I resisted, you know what that's like, right? Like you don't want to be told what to do. Mm -hmm. And she really got to this place where, you know, she calls it divine love, you know, like the sun shines its light, you know, on everything without discriminating, you know, you don't have to be a good person to have the sun shine on you. And love works the same way. You know, it's like, if you love somebody, love them as they are. And she came to this place where she was like, you know, I love this guy, I want to be married to him. And I'm just going to accept him exactly as he is. And she, she didn't do it in a lip service kind of way. Like she really got to an honest place where she really embodied that. And I think when that occurred, which was shortly before the staircase episode, you know, where I got my chain yanked, um, you know, with this health scare, uh, you know, I could feel it, you know, suddenly she was no longer, you know, there like kind of nudging me and suddenly that flips the mirror and you have to, you look at yourself and you realize like, oh, you're responsible for your own life and your own decisions. Like who wants to do that? Right. But like, it made me think like, oh, I I have to be accountable to myself on this you know, not for somebody else, but for myself. And so I was kind of primed, you know, to, to begin that process when I had this health scare that really catalyzed, you know, everything that followed. Sure. Sure. Um, 
Let's talk about food, man. I love cheese too. Dude, I'm a sucker mm-hmm. for cheese. Cheese pizza, um, the dairy products. You talked about that. You you'd mentioned before you're um you're vegan, you're a vegan advocate. Um man, what are some some tips, some little things that that you do to make healthy food choices with a busy lifestyle with kids, with work? I mean, trying to juggle different different projects. Um I know it's probably a bit different for you, maybe because um, you know, you have been on on a solid plan for so long but um any any advice on that tip yeah sure i mean now it's like second nature to me i don't really think about it that much just like you're probably not thinking about drinking today yeah um but i i take a very recovery um kind of based approach to it you know the tools that i learned in recovery are highly applicable to my lifestyle in particular my diet and you know when i had this health scare and realized I needed to make some changes. It was a six month period of of transitioning before I fully adopted a plant-based diet. But, you know, along the way I shed meat and that actually wasn't that hard. Like I didn't crave it that much. I realized like I'd been eating it most of my life without really thinking about whether I even liked it all that much. I mean, I like a cheeseburger, but like chicken and fish I could care less about. Um, but dairy was tough. You know, dairy was really hard. I craved dairy like crazy, and it's in everything. And when I finally, you know, kicked the bucket on on, on dairy, it was like being in rehab. Like, I, <laughs> I went through withdrawals, man. Yeah. You know, it was tough. But about seven to ten days, you know, after kicking dairy and being off meat, I really felt tremendously better. Like, it was very noticeable. And then, you know, it became a way, it became, it became a process of trying to find tools to maintain it. And I relied on the principles of recovery. Like, you know, in, in, in recovery, you don't drink or use no matter what, right? You don't yeah. drink alcohol, you don't do drugs. Well, I don't eat meat and I don't eat dairy no matter what. And that removes all the decision fatigue out of it. It's just, that's my rule. And it, I keep it really simple. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, within that, there's many strategies that I employ. I mean, I think, you know, you have to make the healthy choice, the convenient choice. That's the biggest rule, Mm. you know, so you have to surround yourself with healthy options all the time so that you're not, your car doesn't, you know, automatically pull into the drive-thru without you being consciously aware of what you're doing because you're starving and you don't have, there's nothing else around that, you know, can satisfy you. So I try to always, you know, at home, we have tons of healthy food. I keep healthy food in my car, lots of fruit and nuts and dates and things like that. Um, and I just, you know, give it a little bit of a forethought. Uh, but, you know, just like recovery, you know, once you put some time and some distance between these foods that you crave, that craving loses its edge and loses its power. And so now, you know, it, it just doesn't really, you know, every once in a while I'll smell something that sounds appealing, but it's not mm-hmm. that obsession, you know. Mm-hmm. And I realized, I realized through this process how much I was addicted to food, perhaps, you know, food even being, you know, my number one drug of choice beyond drugs and alcohol and how much I had medicated my emotions through my eating habits. And yeah. that's been a whole journey into, in, in and of itself. Well, I think that's hard too with that. Like we were saying that pedal to the metal attitude kind of, you know, it's either all or none. So um, I like the approach of approaching it from a recovery aspect. I just, I'm not going to do it, period, because there's really no middle ground. I know, at least for me, that the middle ground stuff, man, it's, it's a struggle. It doesn't work. It, it, yeah. it doesn't. It doesn't work. It, whether it's editing a, a video or a podcast or doing a project or eating or, or alcohol, there's just, there's, there's really, really tough. 
Yeah, I don't understand these diets where they give you a cheat day. Like, if I had a cheat day, <laughs> I'd spend six days thinking about the cheat day, you know? And then suddenly I'd give myself two cheat days, you yeah. know? And it would just devolve from there. It's like saying you can get drunk once a week. I mean, it just doesn't work. It, it doesn't. It doesn't work. No, it doesn't work. And yeah, that's good stuff. Uh, I got one more question for you, Rich, and then we're going to get into the heart and hustle round, all right? All right. Um, real simple here. What advice would you give the newcomer who wants to get or stay sober? The best advice I can give is to, is to ask for help. You know, no alcoholic likes to ask for help. I didn't want to ask for help. I wanted to solve the problem by myself. And when I was in that mindset, I just got sicker and sicker and worse and worse. You've got to raise your hand. You've got to open up. You've got to find somebody that you trust that you can talk to and share your demons with that person. That is the absolute key. You know, I think beyond that, the number one key in getting and staying sober is willingness, but you can't grant somebody willingness. Willingness is internally uh, driven. You know, so I hope, I hope anybody out there who's listening, who's suffering, is willing to do what's required to get sober. Um, but beyond that, the first step, I think, is, is, is just is asking for help. At least have the willingness to ask for help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great advice. All right, Rich, we're going to jump into the heart and hustle round. You're going to put your heart into each answer, but hustle through it in 30 seconds or less. You ready? Go for it. (laughs) All right, here we go. Number one, where's the weirdest place you've ever thrown up, and where's the weirdest place you've ever woken up? The weirdest place I've ever thrown up. I know I have some great ones, and I can't think of it right now, but I think, you know, I mean, I've I've thrown up everywhere. You know what I mean? Like I've thrown up on – on the front glass window of restaurants. I've thrown up, you know, in my bed, of course. I've thrown up. I mean, where haven't I thrown up? I've thrown up absolutely everywhere. How about in a pool? Oh, uh, yeah, I've thrown, up in a, I've thrown yeah. up in a pool a lot. I've thrown up in a pool sober, just working oh. out. Uh, yeah, throwing up. Uh, I don't miss yeah, that. No. Uh, weirdest place you've ever woken up. I mean, I've woken up in strangers' apartments. I've woken One time, I... I uh, it was a weekday. I was working at a corporate law firm. I woke up hungover, had a vodka tonic in the shower in the morning. And before I knew it, I was like at the airport flying to Vegas, like on a weekday, I just called in sick. And then I just blacked out and I woke up in a hotel room in Vegas and I'd lost my wallet. I don't know what happened to my wallet with half my clothes. Like, I don't know what happened to me. I still don't remember how exactly I got home. Uh, but yeah, it's pretty, you know, Gosh. unspeakable demoralization. Yeah, yeah, and I'm, I'm sure that's, uh, I'm, you know, like many of us, we have many stories like that. So the sobriety, man, God, it feels good. Number two, what is the best thing about being sober? The best thing about being sober is I get to live my life. You know, like, you know, I live, I, I, my life just doesn't bear any resemblance to what it was like when I was drinking at all. And I, I'm so happy and my life is so big and full and I have so many amazing opportunities and I get to wake up every day and do what I love doing and I get to help people. And it's just so incredibly gratifying and beyond anything I could have ever imagined for myself. Because if you had told me, you know, when I went to rehab that I was going to be doing what I'm doing today, not only would I 
have told you that's ridiculous and impossible. It wasn't even what I'm doing now wasn't even anything that interested me back then. So I think, you know, the best thing about being sober is that you get to hit reset on your life. You get to reboot your operating system and you're surrounded by people that want nothing but good things for you who will support you in, you know, basically, you know, recreating your life and, and living your dreams. And where else can you get that for free? It's incredible. So sobriety is, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing not great about being sober, but, you know, I just, I, I can't say enough about how much sobriety has changed my life. I mean, I just, I would be dead. I wouldn't be here yeah. at all. So I'm in overtime on everything. Sure, man. Sure. Super inspiring. Number three, what is one thing you know now you wish you would have known at the beginning of your sobriety? The thing that I understand now fundamentally is what it feels like to live in faith. And by that, I don't mean, you know, any kind of religious dogma. I mean what it means to tap into yourself, to reconnect with your heart and take action upon that, upon that when you don't know where it's going to lead. And trust that the universe will show up and provide for you if your intentions are pure and, you know, your heart and your mind and your body and your spirit are all in alignment. And, you know, that's something that I wouldn't have believed. It's like this weird, bizarre, universal law that exists. But that premise, that precept has proven true in my life a million times over, and I've seen it happen in so many other people's lives in sobriety. And, you know, it was a very difficult road of getting to a place of, of trusting that. There was a lot of, like, yeah. what's going to happen if I quit my job? Or what's going to, you know, all those sorts of things that, that just gripped me in this prison of fear. Uh, you know, the, the other biggest thing is that fear is not real. You know, I was living my life based on fear for, you know, the vast majority of, you know, my adult life. And sobriety has been about unpacking that and understanding that fear is just an emotion. And, and, and sobriety has given me the tools to combat that fear and take action in the face of it. And that has transformed my life tremendously. Number four, how do you stay sober? Uh, I'm very active in in a 12-step program. Um, I have a sponsor. I've got sponsees. I work the steps. Uh, you know, I have a home group meeting that I go to. I stay in contact with my sober buddies. I'm of service, uh, both in the rooms and outside of the rooms. And, uh, and all of that is absolutely instrumental and critical, you know, to my sobriety. And there's a lot of people that say to me, oh, it's been a long time. Like, you still go to AA? It's like, yeah, you know, I, of course I do. That's my number one priority. And unless it remains my number one priority, I won't be sober for very long. Yeah, that's a good point, man. All right, Rich, uh, where can listeners find more information about you and where can they pick up a copy of Finding Ultra? Yeah, sure. So my website is richroll.com, R-I-C-H-R-O-L-L.com. That's where I have all my stuff. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Rich Roll. Uh, on Snapchat, it's I am Rich Roll. You can find my videos on YouTube. Just type in my name. So I'm pretty easy to find on the uh, internet. And as far as the books, Finding Ultra and Plant Power Way, you can get them on Amazon or any Barnes and Noble, any place that you you know buy books should be available. Rich, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Thanks, Shane. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show with Rich. Go to thatsoberguy.com and join the Sober Guy community. There's some great resources on there, and there's some great ways to help keep you connected in your recovery. Peace, love, respect. Keep your blood clean.